what would you say? Well, what we have here in Deuteronomy, this fifth book of the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible, is exactly that. It's Moses gathering together all of the Israelites because he is about to die. And as he gathers them together, these people that he spent 40 years out in the wilderness with, going through the ups and the downs, going through literal battles, he gives them these parting words that he believes are the most important thing for him to hear. And of course, we've got this book here. It's in book form for us. Um, I tallied it up on my audio Bible. It would take you about three hours to listen to in its entirety. So the fact that I'm going to do just 40 minutes this morning on Deuteronomy probably is pretty excusable. Um, But this would have been a sermon that would have taken, say, three hours or so. He gathers them together. It wouldn't just be a book that remains as words on a page. You get me? These would have been words that were heard. In fact, just look with me. Um, Chapter 5, if you've got the Bible there, chapter 5, it's on page 150. Just look at the start of this chapter. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Then flip over to chapter 6, next page, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. Do you hear something repeated there? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. He wants them to not only read, but hear. In fact, this part in chapter 6 here is called the Shema, which just means hear. Now, there's a difference between reading and hearing, isn't there? Give me a little bit of feedback. What's, What's different about hearing something or listening to someone as opposed to reading it on a page? Tell me, what's what's different? If you're reading it, there's no escaping what's written, whereas you might hear what you want to hear. So like you might hear something in the tone or something like that. Yep, so hearing is a bit more up for grabs. What else? Hearing takes a lot more concentration. Ah, good, yep. Hearing perhaps takes more concentration. Maybe because if you miss it, then you're not going to get it back. <laughs> You've got to make sure you stay with them. So stay with me this morning. What else? Right, so you might hear the speaker emphasising what they think is important. You might hear it in their tone of voice. It's kind of the flip side of what you were saying, Sally. Uh, Another point is that um, the fact that, for example, right now, you can't hide your book in a page. Like, oh, hide your book in a page? Hide your face in a book? A page of a book. Got it. All right. You can't hide your face in the page of a book Um, because I'm looking at you right now. You're listening to me and... By that virtue, it demands a response, doesn't it? It's immediate. You're tracking with me. You're going on a journey with me. And at the end, you're eyeballing me. (laughs) And there's a response that's required. Uh, That's one of the big differences between hearing and reading. Reading, you can sort of sit. and Yeah, it's true. You can't escape the words on the page, but you can ponder and sit and reflect. And that's that's very good. There's a place for that. Um, But when you hear, it's immediate and there's a response required. That's what Moses is doing here. He's gathering Israel and saying, well, you've heard, now respond. You know what the Lord wants you to do, now respond, okay? Because they've heard the law, they've got that in in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. They've heard what God has done for them. 
in the past, how he's saved them from Egypt, how he's led them through the wilderness. But now is the time to respond. This isn't just information. It's transformation. Now is the time for their response. Um, and for some of us today, you know, we could put ourselves there with them, hearing this sermon from Deuteronomy. There's many things that we know about God. We know what he's done for us. We know what he wants from us. For example, we might know that there is only one God. Maybe we've been around church for quite a while or we've read parts of the Bible or even just we've grown up in Western world and, and there's kind of some knowledge about Christianity that goes with that. And so we go, yeah, I know and I believe that there really is only one God, the God of the Bible. In the buffet table of different religious choices and worldview choices in the world today, I believe the God of the Bible is the only one. Okay, I know that. And we might say, I know that he's really the only king ultimately and that I know that I've sinned against him and I know that I deserve his judgment and I know that he sent his son Jesus to save me from my sins like we've just been singing about. And we might say, I know that now having faith in Jesus, I'm supposed to follow him, not to be saved, but because I'm saved, I know all of this. But the question is, how do I respond? Not just yesterday, but today, and not just today, but also tomorrow. How will we respond to what we hear and have heard from God's word? That's really the point of the book of Deuteronomy. Everything comes down to the response. In fact, the, the whole sermon, the whole book is really just an unpacking of the Ten Commandments, which they already know. Uh, and now it's a call to response. Okay, I just want to show you this really quickly. Structure of Deuteronomy, chapters 1 to 4. You've got the history of God and the history of Israel together. So it talks about how God saved them from Egypt and began to leave them in the desert. It also talks about how they responded to him, the Israelites, his people that he saved, which uh, let's say was they responded in a fairly mediocre sort of way. <laughs> they grumbled a lot about the fact that, oh, we're in the desert now. We'll see that as we go through today. Um, chapter 5, the Ten Commandments, uh, again, they've already heard them, they already know them. And so then what happens is that chapter 5 with the Ten Commandments expands out into the rest of the book. Um, if you're someone who loves getting information, I'll chuck this on the website, by the way, so you don't need to write it down. Um, so each of the Ten Commandments actually corresponds with a, a chapter or so from the rest of the book. You can see, for example, in chapter 6 to 11, it's, it's really unpacking what does it look like to worship God alone? Not the other gods, the false gods of the Canaanites in the Promised Land that they're about to go into, but worshipping the true God alone. Uh, chapter 12 talks about idolatry. It talks about, well, if you're going to worship God, here's the place that you're going to worship him in. Not the place where idols are worshipped, but this place that's specified for you so that you will not bow down to idols. It's all this, this application. It's gearing them up for response by going into more detail of how to obey each of these Ten Commandments. It goes through the whole way. And then in the end, Deuteronomy 30 verses 19 to 20, this is how Moses basically concludes his sermon. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. The conclusion of the book is you've heard it all and we've given you, I've given you now from the Lord how this is meant to look in life. Therefore, now respond. 
and choose life. Now, for both the Israelites and for us today, as we consider our response to God's word, one of the things that's really helpful about Deuteronomy is it's very realistic. It's realistic about the human condition. It's realistic about the things that distract us. And so as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is in that first section, what does it look like to worship God alone? Um, What we see here is that there are huge distractions to responding to God, to responding to his word. One of those distractions is the bad times, the hard times of life. How might that distract us from responding to God? Well, it may lead us to doubt him, may lead us to wonder how he's been at work, if he's been at work. Another distraction is the good times, when things are good, when things are comfortable, when we feel secure and safe, and we're tempted to think, well, there's nothing for me to worry about. I don't need God. Or even if we don't consciously think that, we just push him to the side. He's out of the picture. The good times and the bad times, the rough times and the safe times, all of life actually is a distraction. (laughs) And that's where Deuteronomy 8 is really helpful. Here's what we'll see as we go through. Remember God in the bad times and don't forget God in the good times so that you respond and have life. This is really key to the book of Deuteronomy. Um, This is spoken to the Israelites, but it's for us today as well. So let's dive in. What we're going to do, we're going to spend a bit longer on that first point, remember God in the bad times, uh, and then a bit of a shorter time on the second. Okay, so here we go. Remember God in in the bad times. Deuteronomy 8, uh, page 152, if you've got a Bible, coming in at verse 1. Remember God in the bad times. Moses says this, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Now, notice how Moses starts by pointing to the Israelites again to what they already know. They know the commandments. Now, respond by keeping the whole commandment. Not just the bits that you like, not just the bits that you think are easy. Keep the whole commandment. Not just the bits that you think are helpful for you personally. Everything. Keep the whole commandment carefully so that you may enter into the promised land and live as God's faithful people. All right, so that's, they already know that. So then verse 2 gets into the nitty-gritty. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, there's a key word there at the beginning of the sentence. Did you notice it? The word remember. Now, there's different ways of interpreting the word remember, isn't there? Uh, I, I might interpret remember to mean something like, oh, it's just, it's popped into my mind. Like, oh, yeah, I remember what I had for lunch today. That was really yummy. Um, but there's another sense to the word remember as well, which is more of a, an intentional remembering, a recalling, uh, often the sort of thing that you might do, for example, at an anniversary. So Sky and I, we're having our first anniversary coming up in a couple of months, which is really cool. And we're just planning out where we're going to go for a short holiday, like just a couple of days. Um, and, and what we'll do over that time, of course, is remember back to our wedding day. We'll remember so many of you guys were there and, and 
that was such a great day and we'll go through the memories of the day and we'll remember our first year of marriage and how that's all gone. And what that actually does is we sit down and intentionally remember is it pushes us in a direction. It actually sort of galvanizes us for the future, for the second year of marriage. That's the kind of remembering that Moses is calling the Israelites to here. Not just let God pop into your mind every now and then, but remember intentionally what he has done for you these last 40 years in the wilderness. And may that push you in a direction of response. That's the kind of remembering here. Now, just something to notice. This is a hard time for Israel, these 40 years out in the wilderness. Wouldn't you agree? Think about camping. Who here likes camping? I actually really enjoy camping. Who doesn't like camping at all? Yeah. Um, I've got friends who have just bought a caravan. Now, why do people buy a caravan? So they can go and enjoy the outside world without having to be outside. Right? Camping can be tough, especially when you've got those drop toilet things and it's all smelly and it's disgusting. Here's the Israelites. They're out in the wilderness, the desert. Here's the desert of Sinai. This is what it looks like. Okay? That's where they're camping. No drop toilets. No caravans. This is where they are for 40 years. There's poisonous snakes. There's armies that are like just niggling at them, right? Little battles and skirmishes. They're there for 40 years in the heat, searching for water. Gosh, it'd be horrible, wouldn't it? And they'd be prompted, of course, to start thinking, well, where's God in all of this? He saved us from Egypt, but for what? Here we are, stuck for 40 years. Where's God? Remember how the Lord your God led you. You can go somewhere. He was leading them through the desert. Leading them in what way? Take a look at what it says, verse 2. He was leading them these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Why did God allow them to stay in those hard times for 40 years? To humble them and to test them, to know what was in their heart. Now, that's an interesting phrase, to know what was in their heart. It's a bit unusual. Why would God need to know what's in their heart? He knows everything. Well, it's not God who needs to know. It's the Israelites who need to know what's in their heart. This is more exposing what's in their heart for all to see. Will they keep his commandments? Will they be faithful? This is a test. It's a bit like when Jesus, in fact, has his own wilderness experience over in Matthew chapter 4. You may recall this. Uh, Jesus is out in the wilderness for how long? 40 days. There's actually some equivalents there. 40 days, 40 years, wilderness, wilderness. He's out there. He's hungry. And the devil comes to tempt him. Remember what the devil says. He says, turn this stone into bread if you're the son of God. Turn this stone into bread. And do you know how Jesus responds? But on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's right. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Take a look at the next verse. Verse 3. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus actually quotes this book and says to the devil, God's words are life. 
bread is good for the stomach, essentially, but God's words bring life. And I'm not going to abandon those. You can see there that Jesus, of course, passed the test as the Son of God. What about the Israelites when they're out in the desert? See, this was a time of testing to see whether they would have that kind of response. Would they keep God's commands? Would they trust him? Or would they grumble against him? And what did that expose about their heart? What about for us? When we go through tough times, what's our response to God in those tough times? What's your understanding of who he is and what he's doing? It may well expose what's in our hearts. So too for the Israelites. God tests them and God humbles them. And the test is to see what's in their heart. But the, the humbling aspect, humbling them, is to show them that they must rely on him. Just like Jesus says, um, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That is, his words are life. Where is life truly? It's by trusting God and walking with him. They need him. That's what God is trying to show them. It's worth noting as well that, um, of course, he looks after them. He's a good father. Right? He gives them mana. He lets them hunger, but he also feeds them. So you might remember from, from Numbers last week, the mana is this, this bread that appears on the, the dew, on the grass. Um, so uh, he does feed them. And then verse 4, take a look. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. So he's looking after them. He's a good father. But every good father also disciplines their children. That's why he tests them and why he humbles them. Take a look at verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And we all know what the opposite of this looks like. When a parent doesn't discipline their children, it's actually not an act of love to avoid disciplining your children. I remember once um, I used to play indoor soccer and I was standing on the sideline uh, waiting for a, a match to start. And um, I was just watching this, this game and there was a mum standing there with her kid who's probably like five years old and all of a sudden the kid just bolts onto the field mid-game uh, runs up to the man between the goalposts on the other side of the field and sits down between his legs in the goal mouth <laughs> and everyone's you know pausing and kind of goes like oh isn't that cute okay cool okay keep trying to move <laughs> and uh the guy in the goal mouth turns out to be his father he's like oh what do i do he's just kind of standing there kind of hugs the kid and then the ref goes, okay, son, you know, time to move. And the kid just stays there. And then the rest of the players, you can see they're starting to get a bit antsy because they've paid like 14 bucks to play this game and, uh, and they're being robbed of a couple of minutes. Uh, and, and now um, the kid's still sitting in the goal mouth. And so dad kind of shuffles him off using his leg and then he gets up and eventually wanders back. And okay, good, two minutes. All right, yep, let's start the game. Go again. Kid runs back to mum. Mum says, stay here. The kid runs back on the field again, goes back to the goal mouth, hugs his dad's leg. This time, no one goes, oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> Everyone goes, oh my goodness, this kid. The dad does nothing. He just stands there awkwardly like, you know, what am I supposed to do? Kid does what he wants to do. The kid just wanders again after about another minute, wanders back to mum who picks him up this time. Good move. But then the kid says, I want ice cream. And the mum goes, no, we're not having ice cream right now. And he yells, ice cream. So she says, okay, let's go get ice cream. Right? Now, there's the picture of a kid who hasn't been disciplined. 
Is it an act of love to avoid discipline? Absolutely not. It's an act of love to discipline them so they can function in society. You know, I, I actually fear for that kid. What's it going to be like when he's a, a teenager and an adult? Is he going to be able to hold down a job? You know, there's all these sorts of things. So God, the father of the Israelites, disciplines them so they would be able to function as his people in the promised land. Do you see how that works? See, times of testing can actually be times of disciplining to grow us. That's exactly what he's trying to do among the Israelites, to test them, see what's in their hearts, expose it for them to see, and humble them that they might rely on him and be able to function as his people. And the conclusion is this, verse 6. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. See, by remembering how the Lord has led them in the desert, providing for them, testing them, humbling them, disciplining them, the Israelites are then to go, okay, having remembered who God is and what he's done, I now choose to obey him and follow him. That's the pattern. Uh, there's one commentator on this book, Daniel Block, who writes in the, uh, the New International Version application commentary. Uh, he writes this. Uh, he says that there's kind of this, this flow of reading, hearing, learning, fearing, obeying, and living. It's kind of this flow chart in the book of Deuteronomy. So here we have these, these words, to read, um, and they lead to hearing. So Moses has written them down. He reads them out, and they're heard. And the hearing leads to learning. Learning who God is, learning what God's done, learning he was there in the hard times, learning who he was in the hard times, learning who we are in relationship with him, which leads to fearing God. It's a biblical phrase. Uh, Sometimes what we say is uh, fearing God. Uh, It sounds like being terrified of God. It's not as much that. Sometimes we go the opposite direction and we go, well, it just means like a reverent awe, but that also doesn't really capture it. It's a bit too soft. It's kind of both of those things together. It's understanding that God is God, okay? And we don't mess with him. <laughs> he really is God and king and the judge of the whole universe. But it's also, it's also not being terrified in his presence. It's knowing that God is God and being reverent of him putting him in his proper place, therefore bowing before him, knowing who I am, knowing who he is, knowing that there's this huge gulf between us, but that as I come before him, I'm allowed to come before him, um, there is this sense of, of reverence and of holy fear. Okay, So the learning leads to fearing God, which leads to obeying, and obeying leads to living. That's the, that's the book of Deuteronomy and the, the response that's kind of trying to be generated here by remembering where God is during the hard times. Now, it's worth asking, um, noticing on that little thing, uh, fearing leads to obeying, which means to living. Leads to living. Now, it sounds a bit funny there. Does, is that saying that the Israelites, if they do everything that God wants them to do, then they go into the land as if it's you know, their righteousness, their goodness, that lets them live in the promised land? Well, the answer is no. Take a look at Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. This is again on page 153. He says to them, or Moses says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them, that is the other tribes out of the promised land, after he thrust them out before you, 
It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. He's saying, hey, you guys are still kind of ratbags, but they're bigger ratbags. And I'm going to get rid of them because they're, they're, they're absolutely stuffing this place up. Um, the tribes in the promised land at this time in Canaan, um, they're doing horrible things. Um, so think child sacrifice. Um, think really horrific sex crimes, we would call them today. Uh, really awful things. They're oppressing the people around them. And so God says, I'm going to judge them and let you live there instead. Okay? So it's not because of your righteousness, because of their wickedness. But then there's another point as well. Come down, verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The point is promise. God made a promise. This is way back Genesis 12. God made a promise to Abraham that he would give him land and children and blessing. And the first part of that is the promised land. The children has been fulfilled because here they are. Here are the Israelites. These are the sons of Abraham. And now they're coming into the land that God promised. So God is, is faithful to keep his promises. And this land that they're coming into, not because they're righteous, but because of the wickedness of the people there and because of God's promise, this land is good land. Verses 7 to 10 describes it all. I won't read it all out, but it's a land that's, that's full of good food and, and good water, um, good stuff for them to enjoy, uh, good places for them to build their homes, total opposite of what you can see right here, right? The bad times in Sinai. This is going to be good times. And he says, you're going to come into that land. It's coming. But you must remember where God has been during the bad times. Because, take a look at the end of verse 10. The goal of them coming into the land is this. You shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. You'll bless him, you'll praise him, you'll honour him. What kind of people will bless and honour and praise the Lord? Not the kind of people who are doubting him. Not the kind of people who are saying, well, we barely just made it here and no thanks to God, right? It's only the people that understand, oh, no, God has actually been testing us and humbling us this whole time. He's actually been leading us to become his people and function as, as, as his people, his holy people, that he saved us to be. Only those people will bless the Lord once they receive these good things. That's why it's so important to remember God in the hard times, in the bad times. But of course, there'll be another distraction when they come in. The distraction of the good times. Here's a, a picture of um, Galilee, which is part of this land of Canaan. Um, you can see it's, it's a lot more fertile. Um, there's water, there's trees. It's a modern day picture, so there's also buildings. This would have been a, a beautiful place in which to live. But the good times themselves can be, of course, a distraction. Take a look at verse 11. There's a bit of a tone shift here. Moses says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. And the word forget here, like the word remember, can have different interpretations. I could mean forget like I've just walked out the door of my house and I feel my pockets and I go, Oh, whoops, 
I forgot my keys. That means I can't get into my car or my house. This is going to be a great day, right? So that might be one kind of forgetting. It's just, oops, it slipped my mind. But there's another kind of forgetting too. And just take a look at the phrase, take care lest you forget your, the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. There's actually a very close equivalence, a very close link here between forgetting and not obeying. The two are actually synonymous. So forgetting is intentionally going against God's commandments. To forget the Lord your God is to say, I'm pushing you out of the picture. I'm not going to think about what you want. I'm going to do what I want. It's intentional. It's willful. And so he says, don't forget the Lord your God. Because the good times are going to put you at risk of doing exactly that. Verses 12 to 14 basically one long sentence of all the things that they're going to get. And just listen to this. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, <laughs> then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. You see how it's this sense of just, you'll have everything. It's going to be multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. And then your heart will be lifted up. That is to say, uh, you're going to lift up your sense of self, your sense of, oh, look at all I've got. Look how secure and safe I am and how content I am. And you're going to forget the Lord, your God, and all that he's done for you. And we're at grave risk of the same thing today. Wouldn't you agree? No, you've just got to look around the world. Oh, most of us can live in relative comfort, especially compared to a lot of other places around the world. Uh, we've got a roof over our heads. We've generally got food that we want to eat. Some of us have much more than that. We might have even a, quite a nice place to sleep, quite a large place to sleep. Uh, we might have not just the food that we want to eat, but food that's delicious to eat. You talk about building up knowledge, right? Anything that we want to know, all we've got to do is say like, Okay, Google, or like, hey, Siri, and there it is. And hopefully I haven't set anyone's phones off. <laughs> All right? We can know anything. We can do just about anything that we want today. We can go anywhere we want. You pay money and you can go over the other side of the world. We live in a time that breeds great self-sufficiency and where it is very tempting to say, I don't need God. I have everything that I want. Beware. Beware, says the book of Deuteronomy, because here's where it leads. Verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the wealth of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Right? We fill our houses with all these things that multiply and they're all little reminders that, hey, I earned that with my money from my job that I got with my brain and my opportunities. I did it. But here's the reality. Just come back with me. Verse 15, or verse 14 rather. What is it that God had done for the Israelites? Well, don't forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Remember Moses hit his staff on the rock and the water came out. God did that. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna 
that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. God saved you, he's saying to the Israelites. He saved you from slavery. He brought you through the wilderness. He looked after you in the wilderness. He began forming you as his people in the wilderness. And you're going to say that you got here on your own back? And you're going to say that you got the stuff that you've got because of your power and your cleverness? Hold on, it's God who's done all this. Think about us today. How are you breathing every breath that you're currently breathing? Because God chooses to give you life. How are you thinking every thought that you're currently thinking? How are you seeing everything that you're currently seeing? It's because God in his graciousness chooses to give you another moment of life. How are you here at all? How am I here at all? Because God in his sovereign grace chose to give us life. How did you earn the things that are in your home? God gave you the brain you've got and he gave you the hands you've got. Everything we have is because of God's gracious kindness. And Think about the fact that we have this salvation in Christ. Like we were talking about before, this stuff we know that we have been forgiven our sins by trusting in Jesus who died on the cross to take God's judgment for us. Again, that's not because of our righteousness. It's not because God saw that we were good enough and then sent his son. It's God saw that we were his enemies and still chose to give us his son that we might have life by trusting in him. Therefore, verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. He's saying to the Israelites, God's given you all you have. God's been faithful to his promise. He's confirming his covenant. It's not because of your righteousness, not because of your goodness. He's just been good to you. Remember God in the bad times. Don't forget God in the good times. And then we come back to what does this mean for us really today? And I just want to point us to something here in 1 Peter. If you want to flip over with me. 1 Peter, it's towards the back of the Bible. We're going to finish on this. 1 Peter, chapter 1. It's on page 1014 in your Bibles, if you have one from down the back. Because see, all of this is is gearing up towards a call to action, right? Uh, Remember God in the bad times so that you don't doubt him, but instead see that he's been testing you, leading you, looking after you, humbling you so that you could function as his people. Therefore, respond by obeying him now. And don't forget God in the good times, thinking that you've got everything you've got because of your own righteousness and goodness and power. Instead, see that God has given you everything graciously. And therefore, since he has given you so much, respond to the giver by obeying him. Don't love the gifts more than the giver, but now obey. See, it's all leading towards a response, a call to action. What about for us today? 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Just hear this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And just pause there. How do we have hope? How do we have hope today? 
The only way we can have hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus is not raised, then we are still in our sins and our faith is futile. But Jesus has been raised. Hallelujah. He really has risen from the dead. He came as the son of God. He lived as a sinless man, always choosing to obey God as opposed to us who have disobeyed God. And then in dying on the cross, he could pay the debt for our sin. He could take the judgment we deserve. And in rising from the dead, he's been authenticated as the son of God. So that as we trust in him, we really are forgiven. We really have been born again to a new and living hope. Hallelujah. And that living hope is leading somewhere. Verse 4. We've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. What's an inheritance? It's something that we're receiving in the future. Something good that we haven't earned ourselves. It's come from another. And we will receive it in the future. It's our promised land, as it were. Here's this inheritance. It is something imperishable. Something undefiled. Something unfading. Kept where? In heaven for you. This is the inheritance of eternal life with God and his people forever. Where all our tears will be wiped away. All our shame taken away. And we can enjoy the life we were created to have with God and his people forever. By trusting in Jesus Christ. Here's the inheritance kept for you that cannot be taken away because... Verse 5, by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, just as the Israelites were looking forward to the promised land, we look forward to this inheritance to come. This inheritance where we will enjoy life as it's meant to be with God and his people forever through faith in Jesus. It's coming. Friends, do you know it? The plane is about to land and we're about to get on. What about in the meantime? Take a look. Verse 6. In this you rejoice. In this that's coming, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, right now we do go through hard times, all of us. Um, some of them are self-inflicted, like with the Israelites. Some of them are inflicted by others. Uh, some of them are because of our faith. Some of them are because of the reality of simply living in a broken world. Uh, some of them threaten our health. Some of them threaten our mental health or our sense of security or our relationships or our trust in God. But God allows all of it to humble us, to show us that we need him and that his words are life and to test us, to see the tested genuineness of our faith, as this passage puts it. And in the end, if our faith in him does prove genuine, then we will praise Jesus and give him honour and glory when he's revealed as our saviour to bring us onto the plane, so to speak, and take us into the inheritance of eternal life. What kind of people are going to praise and honour and give glory to Jesus? Those that remember who he is and what he's done in the hard times. And those who don't forget him, even in the good times of life right now, 
but instead choose to respond to his word. Not just yesterday, not just 40 years ago, but today. And not just today, but tomorrow as well. It's those who respond with trust. And therefore, let me urge you this morning, respond by trusting Jesus. Respond by trusting that he is the one who is your hope. Whether this is the first time that you're trusting him or the thousandth time that you're saying, yes, here I am and I trust Jesus again. Trust that he is the one who has come to forgive you from your sins, from your rebellion against God. To pay the price that you owe to him. To face the judgment that you deserve and that I deserve. Jesus has come to give you this hope through his death and his resurrection. Turn and trust him. Respond with trust. And secondly, respond with obedience. If you're someone who does trust Jesus, you've been saved, you have this inheritance coming, then in the meantime, respond so that the tested genuineness of your faith can be seen. Respond with obedience. Not just a part of his word, but to all of his word. And so there might be something that you know that you're holding back from God at the moment. Right? Maybe in a particular area of your life, like you've, you've chosen to obey God in this area and in this area, but not in this area. It's, it's like there are different rooms of the house. You've opened up this door to God and you've opened up this door to God, but this door remains firmly shut and locked with the blinds down and the darkness inside, no light, and you're sitting in there alone, hoping that God won't see. It might be because of a relationship at the moment. There might be some way in which you're treating someone with a lack of forgiveness or with a bitterness. There might be a relationship you've got in your life that's not godly. There might be something that you're doing that, that no one can see, but God does see. There might be something that you're thinking in the dark recesses of your mind. You've been tempted to believe about God or about his word that's not right. There might be simply something lacking in your attentiveness to God throughout the week, in daily life. Whatever it is, friends, hear the call. Hear and respond. Respond today with trust and obedience with faith and following. Respond and choose life. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is life. Please help us to respond this morning with that trust and with that obedience. Give us the clarity to see you for who you are uh, and to see ourselves for who we are too and, and to see the truth and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. We have an opportunity now to remember Jesus corporately together as a church as we celebrate communion. So if those who are giving out the bread and the juice could please come and do that. Um, this is a chance to remember all the things that we know about Jesus and to respond. Jesus who lived, who died, who rose again for our salvation.